Well, I thought we might begin today with a little bit of, of fun, a little bit of enjoyment. Let's see if I can get my sermon up here. We can't take everything too seriously, at least I hope not. So, we're, we're going to begin with this this morning. Um, and I do have a point to all this in the beginning. I do have a point that I'm driving home. So, um, when you think of this great artist, you may think of thing one and thing two. I don't know which one you like more. Do you like thing one? Anyone thing one people here or thing two people? Thing one, thing two. You'd rather have, you like thing two better than thing one? Wow, that's amazing. I'm having a tough time seeing the distinction, but that's okay. That's good. Okay, so thing one, thing two. You may think of thing one, thing two. You may think of, of course, the infamous cat in the hat. <clears throat> that's po- certainly possible. Maybe you're thinking of Gertrude McFuzz. Uh, she's certainly a popular, popular um, character. Uh, this one might be more popular. At least uh, this one is for me, Yertle the Turtle, because Yertle the Turtle... I actually got to play Yertle the Turtle. Yes, it's true. I played Yertle the Turtle in the musical Susical a number of years ago before I came here. So my family was involved in a community theater at, um, what's, that, what's that college called? Green River, Green River Community College. So I played Yertle the Turtle. I think Yertle the Turtle had, I think I had one line. Okay, I had a little more than that. I had a little bit of a song that I sang which shows how crazy that theatrical group is, okay? Uh, You might be thinking of this character, Fox and Socks. Uh, Who could forget, of course? Yes, the Grinch. And let's not forget one of my favorite books as a child of uh, Go Dog Go, Go Dogs Go, okay? But last but not least, there is... The ultimate Dr. Seuss character, Horton the Elephant. I like Horton the Elephant. Horton is just this, I don't know, I don't know what to say about him. Uh, Horton uh, has this song that he sings, and that song is called Sala Salu. So Sala Salu is Dr. Seuss's version of heaven. That's why I started with this. It's his version of heaven, and... uh, you may think that that's a bit silly to start with, with, with all this, but, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's something that, as, you know, doc, Dr. Seuss has t- tapped into something really important in humanity. Um, I mean, it's for his verses of heaven. Look at, look at these verses right here. Look at this. Okay? Uh, they say breezes are warm there and people are kind. Sometimes that's all I want. In life, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's like, just give me some kind people, people who won't criticize me and people that are just kind to me. Maybe it's something like heaven. In reality, it is heaven for Dr. Seuss world. I close my eyes. I see in my mind skies are blue. It's blue. And I'm sure it's true. Um, Yeah, the creators of Seussical and Dr. Seuss put their finger on the pulse of human beings. Uh, we want things to be set right in our lives. We want heaven to be real to us. We want to be. And yet most people, 
if they begin to kind of get close, they what what happens to heaven? It, it disappears for them. They, you know, we try to develop these places in our lives where things go well, but there's never that kind of security and stability in our world, especially without Christ. Um, they, you know, these 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 physical people they've touched upon human beings' desire for heaven, um, really written from their own point of view, because that's about as good as people can get, right? I mean, as good as people can get without really having God in their lives is just that they live in a nice place, breezes, it's kind of like Hawaii, right? People breezes are warm there, and people are kind. Um, that's not enough for for me, and I hope that's not enough for you. And yes, there is a heaven. Jesus is returning suddenly to restore all things. But the biblical view of heaven is not a place like Hawaii. It's not uh, not an escape from this world either. The biblical view of heaven is much more than that. The biblical view of heaven is, oh, I guess I put Yertle the Turtle to say this. The biblical view of heaven is personal and it's cosmic transformation. It's really important as Christians in this world that we understand that. That heaven has far more to do with personal and cosmic transformation. That's what heaven is about. That's what is on the horizon for us. Um, I put down here, what did, this, what did the song say? I've had so much trouble finding my way there. When it, get close, when it gets close, it disappears. If I can get there, I'm going to stay there if it takes me miles if it takes me years. The Christian view is actually that heaven is breaking into this world. And I've shared this with you before, and I'm going to share it with you again. In Revelation 3, we have this, this statement about, about heaven breaking into our world. In Revelation 3, Jesus has a, uh, uh, writes to the church of Philadelphia, and he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And then it has this incredible, this really exciting statement that says, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, here's the deal. Is that I, you notice I put the Greek up here. It's, the idea here is that it's coming down. It's actively coming down. It's a present active participle. That's why our translations often say which comes down. But the emphasis here is upon the active coming down. The new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. We actually are experiencing it here today as the church. Hopefully you said hello to someone here today. Did you greet one another in love and grace? So good to see you, Leanna. I love you. Okay, I really do. And, uh, and, but that's what we're talking about is the new heaven coming down. It's happening among us in the church, and it's going to come down in a greater way in time. So yes, again, it's those of you who have been in my teaching or heard my teaching quite a bit, it's, it's that whole thing of the already is here. It's already here, but not yet. Already, but not yet. That kind of thing. Really important that we understand that. And it's about transformation, personal and cosmic transformation. So let's look at our text this morning. So Show us how important this is in the Bible. Our text this morning... Um, I'll go ahead and put the whole thing up here. All right? Um, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Uh, I have preached a couple of sermons, two sermons on this, on this text. I'm not really preaching on this text this morning, not, not verse 28 of Romans 8. I'll be preaching more from Romans 29 and 30. But there's more sermons that could be preached in Romans, from Romans 28, that's for sure. But, uh, but I, need, I do need to move on. Look at verse, verses 29 and 30. Let's read that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I will say that, uh, that if I was sitting down and having a cup, cup of coffee with someone and talking about this text, the first thing that someone's going to ask me is, is about this whole thing of predestination. And so we're going to have a discussion about Calvinism and, uh, versus uh, Wesleyan Arminianism because that's the classic, kind of the classic theological debate that went on, particularly in the 18th century with Wesley. Um, I will tell you that, um, as you know, since I'm in the Nazarene church, I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, but in the history of interpretation, many people have taken this, uh, this, this particularly verses, well, both verses 29 and 30 uh, from a Calvinist perspective. And what does that mean? For those of you who don't know, what does it mean uh, to take this uh, or interpret this from a Calvinist perspective? It means that from at some point in time in the distant past, God selected individuals to be saved. Um, but Calvin goes a little farther than that. If you read his Institutes, you discover it's not just that he selected individuals to be saved, but he gets into what's called double predestination. Um, there have been many of those in the church, in the, in the history of the church, in terms of history of interpretation, that said, well, yeah, God does that, but he doesn't predestine people to be damned. But, but, but Calvin actually says that, well, God actually takes an active role in damning people. So the, so the Calvinist view, at least the historical Calvinist view, and not a whole, not, I don't think too many people hold to this anymore. I mean, they're, they're out there, but though the, in the Reformed tradition, that particular harsh view has been slipping over the last couple of centuries, I think. But nevertheless, this is also known, it's known as double predestination. God selects individuals to be saved, but at the same time, everyone else, he selects them as individuals to be damned. Um, and, and so you know, being in a Nazarene church, I'm going to criticize that view, and I'm not going to interpret, inter, interpret these two verses uh, from a Calvinist perspective. If I did, I would be in a different church. I would not be your pastor. If I was a Calvinist, I wouldn't be in the Nazarenes. I wouldn't. It's that important. Okay. So, so uh, let, let, me, let me share with you what I think is the problem with the Calvinist view here. Number one. Number one. Calvinism misrepresents God's character. Uh, it makes God arbitrary, and it doesn't properly allow for God's love. Um, it makes God um, kind of this kind of this God that we can't understand in any way. Uh, let's take a look at, at Romans uh, chapter chapter two. I have it up here, Romans chapter two. I want you to understand that the gospel is about personal and radical or cosmic transformation. And Paul's already told us this. Look at chapter 2, beginning with verse 6, what Paul says. Uh, he says, he will render to each one according to his works. 
He doesn't say he will render each one according to some sort of selection, but he will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. In other words, for those who are willing to seek after God. Because that's what glory and honor and immortality is, is pointing to. Who, who's the one full of glory? God. Who's the one who, 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 needs to be, who is worthy to be honored? God. Who's the one who defines immortality? Who's the immortal one? God. For those who seek God, he will give eternal life. And he goes on and says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that these, these are decisions that are made by individuals. People decide whether to seek for God or people decide whether to seek for their own life, their own thing, their own kingdom, their own stuff. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Who's the one who does evil? The one who seeks for his or her own stuff, his or her own agenda, his or her own kingdom. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. So there's an openness here for everyone who does good. Notice, notice the, the, um, the, the, the inclusive scope here, essentially. Glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. It's possible to do good. In other words, it's possible to seek after God. And then look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. And what I'm going to argue here is that if God is uh, the God that John Calvin proposed then God is a God of partiality. God has selected some to be saved, and he's selected others to be damned. And by the way, it doesn't matter what you do either in that perspective. All right? doesn't matter. If God has selected you, God's selected you. If God's elected you in the Calvinist sense, then God's elected you. And if he's elected you to be damned, well, you can be a nice guy all you want, but it isn't going to really, isn't matter going to matter in the end. Okay? But the reality is that God shows no partiality, and Paul's already shown this in chapter 2 of Romans. God's not partial. Now, that should actually give you a sense of peace, but that should also scare you. Because every now and then, you, people think, sometimes I even think, hey, you know what, I'm kind of I'm special. You know, I'm, I'm not so bad. God thinks I'm something good. To the degree that I could end up saying, well, I can sin in this area, God's still going to forgive me. God will forgive. But the reality is, is that it's dangerous. Sin is dangerous. Okay? It changes your heart, hardens your heart, gives you a cold heart. Sin is dangerous. And here's the deal. God chose no partiality. You have to continue to seek after God. Because that's what God expects. You see. Okay, but also, uh, more than partiality, the Calvinist view of election... Uh, has a very difficult time understanding that God is love. Is God a God of love? What does John say in his first letter? Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I'll never forget 
being at Asbury Theological Seminary and going to these classes, all these classes, they kept talking about God being loving, God being loving. And I said, well, yeah, he's loving. I was a Calvinist when I went to seminary. And said, God is loving, God is loving, God is loving. Go, yeah, you know, with a qualification. There's a qualifier. There are people that God has, you know, selected for damnation. Right? It's Calvinist view. And I was, I was one of those persons. I can get pretty passionate about my views. You know? And I went to these classes and it's just, yeah, you're laughing at me. <laughs> laughing with me. You're laughing with me. Okay? And, 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 and I kept going to these classes and classes. The real class that broke me down was, uh, was Matthew, uh, study of Matthew and Matthew chapter 10, the missionary discourse. But that's a whole other story. But I'll never forget sitting in chapel and coming to the realization that, yeah, God really does love the world. I, and I think most of you, if not all of you, take that for granted. Of course God loves the world. That's who God is. I'm telling you, there are many in the church throughout the world that do not believe that. At least they qualify it. They qualify it. And what I'm trying to tell you is that you cannot understand that God is truly a God of love if God is selecting people to be saved and taking an active role in selecting people to be damned. Calvin really struggled with this. He said he hated this doctrine, but he could come to no other conclusion. Um, he needed to listen to Wesley. However, Wesley came 200 years later, so you know he didn't have much of an opportunity for that. Okay, so but there's a, there's a second problem with the Calvinist view. All right, there's a second problem. Calvinism ignores. I think it ignores. Now they would argue against that, but I believe that it ignores the immediate and overall context of Romans chapter 8. What has Paul just said? What has he said in Romans chapter 8? Look what he says earlier in the chapter. This is, this is, the whole, this is really the focus here. here. Remember in chapter 7, you have the whole thing of, the, of being in, in slavery to sin? Chapter 8, you get into the freedom of the Holy Spirit. And what's the point of the Holy Spirit? What's the Spirit doing in our lives? Paul says this, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do, Romans 7. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, sin became ineffective. It didn't control, doesn't control our lives. It's condemned. It doesn't control our lives. For what purpose? Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, when God gave the law to Moses... There's nothing wrong with the law. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the law. It's a good law. It's good. But we didn't have the, the ability to fulfill it and to live by it. We need help from the Holy Spirit. So Paul says that God gives us the Holy Spirit for what purpose? For the purpose of, get, of fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. Who not, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul understands there's no sola salu. There's no sola salu. There's no worldly view of heaven. It's, it's not true. Without an internal change in the believer, there must be an internal change in the believer. Um, 
So let's look at verse 28. 28 is a reminder. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What does it mean to be called according to his purpose? And God, uh, or Paul, uh, answers that in verse 29. Hey, little buddy. Thank you. Justin is a firefighter. Yes, you are. You are a firefighter, indeed. You're a firefighter. Okay. Um, for those of you who are listening on this on podcast, my son came up to me and gave me a note that says that he's a firefighter, and it's very important to let him know that dad knows that he's a firefighter. Very important. Okay. Uh, my nephew will probably be laughing at that. I'm not really sure. But anyway, so verse, verse 29. This is what, what does it mean to be called? And Paul answers that in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's purpose for you and me, God's calling on our lives, God's election for us is not an arbitrary selection whereby we enter into Saul's salut, but our calling is to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ so that we think like him, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, so we think like him, so that we are like him, so that we love as he loved, we give our lives away as he gave, gave our lives away. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's other, there's other biblical testimony regarding the same thing. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Luke. Turn to Luke in the first chapter. Turn with me. It's not on the screen. Luke chapter 1. Uh, the angel Gabriel shows up and has a discussion with Zechariah. Zechariah is the uh, father of John the Baptist. And what do we read? Zechariah is confronted with the, with the angel Gabriel. And so in verse 12 we read, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, that is, Gabriel, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Be not afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. In other words, he's been praying, and it implies that he's been praying for a child. A child with his life, Elizabeth, even though she's too old, at least supposedly too old. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's going to be a Nazarite if you know that Old Testament's um, calling. He's going to be a Nazarite, even from his mother's womb. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Why is that? Because God's doing something in the people. God has always wanted to do something in the people. Not just get them out to go to heaven. And he will go before him, verse 17, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Apparently, this is a problem in humanity. Fathers have a way of, at times, kind of like doing their own thing and forgetting about the kids. And the angel's saying, no, this is not of God. You see, fathers are supposed to have a heart for their children. They'll love their children the way God loves us. It goes on and says, 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. It's going to move within us to be obedient people. And then here's the reason why I came, went into this in Luke chapter 1 this morning. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God has always been about changing people, preparing people, moving within people, making us into the image of Jesus Christ. This is God's goal for you and for me. Um, character is the thing that God is after in us. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy that, the, that his aim, their aim as people who bring the gospel to the world is love. Their aim is love. That people would really be different. Um, okay, so, so back to our text here in Romans chapter 8. All right? Um, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also, be, be, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Both those words are going to be words that, that if we're going to take the Bible seriously, we're going to have to think about what in the world is Paul talking about here. It certainly looks on one level to be Calvinistic. God foreknows people, he predestines them. Sounds right, you know, uh, election in that way. But, but it's not the case. First of all, let's deal with the word foreknow uh, or, or to be foreknown. Okay, Paul shows us a little bit later in Romans what he means by this. It's not, uh, it's not the kind of thing that he you know, says, if, if I know you beforehand, your sign still deliver to go to heaven. It's not about that. Take a look at this, at, at, at this uh, uh, section right here in Romans chapter 11. Look at this. Paul, Paul says this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's dealing with big stuff in the people of Israel, right? As, as, as a church entirely replaced... The people of Israel, so Paul's, uh, and his answer is no, not really. He says, I asked him, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. However, Paul also tells us that not all Israel is saved. That not all Israel is really Israel. He'll go on and say all Israel will be saved, but that's another interpretive issue at the end of this section 9 through 11. But the point here is that God foreknows people, but that doesn't mean that they are signed, sealed, and delivered into heaven. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept my, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant. So what Paul is saying is that he foreknew all of Israel, but there's still only a portion of Israel that's going to make it. You see that? The word foreknow or foreknew in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8 doesn't mean that God foreknows people, and because he foreknows them, therefore they're all in. It means that God has given us an opportunity to become like Jesus Christ in a unique way. Look at this. Look at this. For, uh, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
Okay, all right. Um, that word predestined, the Greek word is proariso. It's used six times in the New Testament. I told many of you this before. Say it to again. So this is, we're dealing with Calvinism this morning. We're dealing with this idea of getting, just getting, getting it out of this world, getting into heaven without being changed, without being personally changed. Paul says, look, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the image of his son. And that word is prorizo, used six times in the New Testament. I repeated that for your sake. It means to determine, to just decide beforehand, this kind of thing, but what has been decided. Has he decided that John or Bill or Nancy or Margaret would come into the kingdom and that that, that that particular individual would be elected here and selected and others damned? No. He's talking about the church. pro is used six times in the New Testament. It's always in reference to the church. What is the church predestined to? The church is predestined to be like Jesus Christ. You, as an individual, are not predestined, as an individual, in terms of Calvinistic election, are not predestined, in that sense, to be saved. But you are predestined, as being part of the church, to be like Jesus Christ. You see how important these distinctions are? They're absolutely critical, because I'm telling you, if you ever have an intelligent discussion with people who are Calvinistic, guess what passages of Scripture they're very likely to point to, and it's going to be right here. Right, right here. And it's not that we... Look, I'm not into being right for the sake of being right. That's not the point. I'm just trying to communicate God's love. God loves all the world. God loves the person you're talking to across you know, the, 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 the table. God loves every one of your family members. God has not elected one child of yours to be in heaven, the next child of yours to be damned. God loves all the world. You know, he doesn't desire for anyone to, uh, to be damned. Okay. So God has decided. From, is, that's an important point. That's a really important theological point because I'm going to tell you right now, there are, there are former Nazarenes who have moved over into a Calvinist church and they don't even know it. And that's, a, look, they're good Calvinist churches doing really good ministry, and that's fine. That's fine. But I'm, t- I'm, tr- I'm trying to give you the biblical view here, which happens to be the Wesleyan view. That's in my opinion. You can disagree, and that's fine too. But the reality is, is that there are churches that proclaim a Calvinistic view. Just go on, don't, well, I shouldn't tell you to do this, but just go online and look at the conversations. And it just goes round and round and round and round and round and round and round. And then after you're done with that, round, round, round again. What I'm proclaiming here is that God loves the whole world. And God predestines the church to be like Jesus Christ. And even though God foreknows individuals, doesn't mean those individuals are necessarily going to be saved. It depends what, it depends what they do. Are they going to believe and continue to believe? Okay. Um, now, we've got to move into this next verse. Okay. I hope that this message is helpful for you. I really do. Verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's really easy to take verse 30 and look at it and take it in chronological order. 
So God predestines people, and then because he predestines them, he calls them, to, calls them. Then because he calls them, then he justifies them. Because he justifies them, then he, gives, then he glorifies them. But what Paul's trying to do here is not really speak so much in chronological order. Is he's trying to, to relate all these, put together all these related ideas. You see, calling is about being predestined to be like Jesus Christ. These are related ideas. Uh, justification in this sense is most likely final justification in the sense that there's a time when we're going to go to we're going to come to the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to have to give an account right and Jesus is going to say my son my daughter I shed my blood for you and you trusted me you are justified you know it's more of a final justification most likely and then glorification has to do of course with our going on uh, to be with Jesus but, but these are related ideas and so forth. And it all centers around this, this whole concept that God will get a people that are like Jesus Christ in character. He will do it. He will do it. You see, God will get a holy people. Going back to Luke, you know, and, uh, and when the angel Gabriel shows up, this is what he's saying. This is why Jesus is coming. This is why John the Baptist came, to prepare people to, to be able to receive the message of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the whole point of the gospel, is that we would be changed to become like Jesus Christ. That is our calling. Our calling and our election is to a function that would function this way. Okay? It's dynamic. It's not static. Okay, now, I might sound like a broken record right now, but it's super important stuff. Now, what do we do with all this? You say, man, how are you going to possibly you know, tie this up? Well, I can sort of tie it up. Okay, there's an application, all right? And the application is, first, be thankful. Be thankful that God is a God of love. It is possible that God, it is conceivably possible that God would not be a God of love. What if God wasn't a God of love? What if God really was partial? You know, what if God likes Carrie more than he likes Bob? Good for you, Carrie. Not very good for you, Bob. You know, nothing you can do about it. God loves all people, so be thankful. Just be thankful. Go to the Lord and say, God, thank you that you love the whole world. And just praise him. See, that's the first thing. And then secondly, another clear uh, application here is pursue Jesus Christ. In verse 29, I kind of passed over this, but it says in verse 29, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. You want to be a part of Jesus' family? Keep pursuing Jesus. Keep on living in Jesus. Keep going after Jesus. You know, It's not earning your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. But you should love Jesus and want more of him. Pursue Jesus. Um, and then thirdly, um, thirdly, we have to endure to the end. Oh boy, this is so much part and parcel of the Western Arminian view. It's like we need to know this stuff, right? In all of the discourse, Jesus says this to his disciples who are asking about, like, hey, what's, what's going to happen at the end of the age? And look what he says. You want to be a part of this group, by the way? Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. That's, by the way, that's what we signed up for. We became a Christian. 
And they put Jesus to death. Hmm. So they might put us to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. Notice that. See, there's no place in Matthew's Gospel whatsoever for a Calvinist view of election. There's no place whatsoever. It's, that doesn't exist. In fact, just the opposite. Many will fall away. What do you mean fall away? Yeah, people who were trusted and believed before but rejected Christ. They rejected Christ because they didn't want to pay the price in the midst of persecution. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now we have a very difficult time in our, uh, in our nation, in our culture, really understanding this. Because we're not a persecuted church. We live in, I mean, thank the Lord that we're not a persecuted church. But there are persecuted churches throughout the world. And there may come a time in our lives when the church is persecuted. We don't know. But the principle remains the same. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I think most of this has to do with, in our culture, has to do with uh, temptations to fleeting materialism. Money and sex. That's how people really lose out in our world, in our culture, money and sex. And so they get distracted. They say, well, I grew up in the church, but, you know, it's like, I like these things over here more. I want a bigger bank account. I really like that other woman in addition to my wife, right? This kind of stuff, right? Um, so watch your heart and watch your decision making and keep pursuing Jesus Christ and be thankful. Uh, the gift of God waits for you. And um, I know you're all going to make it because you all love Jesus, right? He loves you. I hope and I pray that this message has been helpful. But this is a difficult text in Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that we just, just gained a little something, a little bit, a little bit more to help us understand what to do with a difficult text like Romans 8, 28 through 30, particularly 29 and 30. I ask, Lord, that we would embrace, embrace the fact that you are a God of love who loves us. And no matter what we do, your love's always going to be knocking on our door. We have to endure the end. And I pray, Father, that we would. We thank you for calling the church to be more than a, just a get-out-of-jail-free kind of a situation or a solid salute thing. But you've called the church to be a people that can truly bear witness to the grace of God in our lives. I ask, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out upon these people and upon these friends. And I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.